I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. On this episode of the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Gil Fronstall explores how to let go of our attachment to outcome and just be. So one of the things that I've learned from um, doing the years of practice that I've done is that uh, some things just are. And uh, to realize that they just are means that maybe we don't have to do so much about them. And maybe we don't have to make them or we don't do anything about them. And uh, one of the things that just is is love. It can be. Uh, it's possible for love just to be. And uh, to love other people can just uh, be, uh, be, just be, just that. There is love. And uh, it doesn't require negotiation, it doesn't require exchange, reciprocity, <clears throat> doesn't require doing a lot and proving it or it just is. And so sometimes it's uh, to discover that, to know that, 
<clears throat> and then to know how to rest in that, where nothing has to happen in that field, in that <clears throat> heart of love, is a wonderful thing. And I think that for me, that I don't think without my practice, my meditation practice, <clears throat> I could have really appreciated that as deeply as I do. Um, and because many times the the lessons or the way it kind of operates in society that I grew up in and around is that uh, love is more complicated. It's uh, interactive. It's some people. It's, it's negotiated. It comes with obligations. It comes with needing to profess love or to be involved in it or to express it. And uh, it just is one of the really precious. Uh, things about uh, young children and being in love with them, just love, just love, that uh, I came to appreciate was, someone mentioned things earlier, I think, was when they're napping. One of the wonders of the world is to go into a preschool class when all the kids are napping. It's, I don't know, it's so sweet. It's like, you know, it just is. You, know, you don't have to do anything, right? You just sit there and just have a darshan, and sit in there and just kind of just receive the sweetness. And it's easy to love sometimes, but for me, just sitting there, just being there in these classrooms and just sensing it and not wanting them to wake up. Because <laughs> then it's different. <laughs> and, um, but you know, at a little place or with, um, you know, and the love that just is. Um, you know, love for others. Um, um, it, it's not something that requires something of others. It doesn't require them to be any particular way. It doesn't require them to, um, you know, to perform or to reciprocate or anything. Just love is just there. And, um, and there is reciprocity, there is exchange, there is agreements and contracts we have, social contracts and things that we expect and want that operate as well. But, uh, but to not know about the love that just is um, means that then we're always busy, always doing and negotiating and fixing. But to love someone and not need anything from them, just, it's just, just, and just to rest in that and just allow it to be. And so um, in... Uh, you know, it's, I think, if uh, sometimes family is a place where sometimes that can be tasted. Um, if you're lucky, I think it's sometimes tasted when the kids are really small, napping maybe, or, you know, they just are, you know. The, the, sometimes the younger the kids are, the easier it is to do that. You know, the, you know the contented three-day-old baby. <laughs> you know, not much is needed. Just, just be, just breathe with them and just smell them and just kind of just be there. Nothing's, you know, unconditional love, right? It's all uncomplicated. And then they become four days old and it, whatever, and it gets more complicated and it gets, you know, it gets more complicated as it goes along. And sometimes, we, maybe we, sometimes we can lose that sense of simplicity. One of the ways that I uh, came to appreciate this kind of simplicity of love was with the sim, uh, simplicity of awareness. And that's kind of points back to meditation practice for me. That awareness is another one of these things can just be, just is. And uh, it's very important for people who practice mindfulness to appreciate that because uh, the way that mindfulness is sometimes taught, it can seem like a doing, like you're supposed to notice and note and 
bring your attention here, investigate there, and all of which is uh, valuable skills to have. And it's certainly part of the overall practice, and there's time and place for that. Um, but a part of the practice is awareness that just is, that is, uh, you know, this kind of awareness that you, it's, um, you know, if you're told to stop doing it, you can't. You know, if I told you, just stop being aware right now, just cut it out, enough of this, you've been doing it long enough. You know, it's like suddenly you try and it's just like, well, it just doesn't go away, it just is. And it's just there. And uh, as, uh, as uh, meditation practice gets stronger, one of the things that can stand out and highlight is awareness that just is. And, so, and then to rest in that. And that's a radical thing for some minds to learn, is to step back and not uh, always be doing not be trying, not trying to be right or good or successful, but just rest in something which is kind of a little bit out of the control. So the same thing with love, to rest in a love that's not, I don't know if it's out of control, but, you know, it doesn't require anything to know something about that. And I think for uh, loving kindness, for metta or goodwill, to be able to uh, have some sense of a love, appreciation, delight, care, compassion, that just is, um, is, a, is one of the great things to do, to discover. And I think for parenting, that uh, to have that somehow as a reference point in the picture, um, so maybe sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground, I think it is very nourishing and meaningful for children, or maybe for your partners, or for anybody actually that uh, they feel like they've been accepted or seen or included or held um, as they are without it being something that's being, um, you know, comes with requirements or comes with negotiations, comes with, you know, anything at all. Just, it just is. See, it just is. You know, so right now we just are here. Not much, you know, nothing. Nothing really has to happen here, right? It's one part of this wonderful thing about Dharma talks that um, if you give a Dharma talk, nothing. If you really want to, if you really want to manifest the Dharma when you're giving the talks, uh, generally nothing needs to happen. And so it's a great you can, job. We're just kind of like here. Unless you're hanging on to every word and want to be entertained or want, want something from it, which is fine to do, and sometimes advice or nice things come out. But there's something very profound about, you know, not getting anything. Wouldn't that be great if you left here and didn't get anything this talk whatsoever? And, and you But you appreciated the chance just to be. And just being was so nice. Wow. This is good. And that's one of the ways to listen to talk, is to not listen to talks trying to get something, but just to be and let the words and the content and the whatever just kind of just kind of move through. And there's a long tradition in Buddhist monasteries, or in the history of Buddhism, of listening to Dharma talks while you're in samadhi, while you're in concentrated state or settled state. And so you're not really trying to do anything, but just let it wash by, wash through. And some trust that if something's important, it'll, it'll stay. If it's not important, it just goes right through. But somehow there's something happens in the transmission or something happens in just the being <clears throat> as, as we're here.
So this idea of just being, just being love, being awareness. In the teachings of the Buddha, he uh, puts a lot of emphasis on being a wise person. And uh, the opposite of a wise person is a foolish person. And you might think that it's unfortunate the Buddha would call someone a fool. Actually, he did that. So you're a foolish person, he said to some people. Um, oh boy, this guy's you know, a little harsh. But the alternative, uh, the kind of the place of a foolish person is that a foolish person is just foolish because of what they've done, um, and they can become wise, as opposed to someone's a sinner. And that's a much harsher kind of judgment of someone, because that's like pretty absolute. And, um, and if you've really done a good sinning thing, you know, it's, I don't know what happens. But uh, if you're foolish, you can become wise. And so one of the definitions that the Buddha gave, or many times he gave for being a wise person, uh, is a very simple and kind of, in some ways, it's uh, so simple it can be easy to overlook because it just seems like garden variety, maybe wisdom. But it's uh, very, I think, profound, philosophically profound, spiritually profound, liberationally profound. And that is, a wise person is someone who benefits themselves, benefits others, and benefits self and others. And, uh, and so all three of these categories. And uh, so, that's, so this pra pragmatic criteria for wisdom is not wisdom about understanding great esoteric teachings of Buddhism, not uh, um, wisdom about, you know, how a computer works or something. It just, you know, what benefits you? How, and so how can you do, how can you participate in the world so it benefits yourself, benefits others, and benefits self and others? And the category I think that is most interesting is this category of self and others. Uh, I think many people understand about benefiting themselves, uh, and, some, and we understand something about benefit others. Some people get the, somehow the message or the idea of one or the other. <clears throat> like you should be altruistic and uh, just really living for the, for the welfare of others. I found uh, a strong message, a strong current in Western thought is the idea of being altruistic. Like you should really live just for the benefit of others and just sacrifice yourself, give yourself over to others. One of the funny places where you see this come out is, um, it hasn't happened for some while now, but... Um, uh, it used to be that when people found out that Buddhists were meditators, uh, non-Buddhists, one of the common critiques was, that's selfish. And uh, somehow you close your eyes and sit by yourself, maybe and meditate, you're kind of like cutting yourself off from the world, and, and that's just selfish to spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, doing this kind of self-absorbed thing, right? Just focusing on yourself. And... Um, and uh, but if you spend two hours, three hours, watching TV, it wouldn't occur to them to say, you're being selfish. <laughs> There's something about this kind of activity that somehow evokes that you, maybe because it's spiritual, it's religious, and it's supposed to be all about altruism and being supportive. But um, um, the... Um, and so there's a, sometimes this very strong divide between being, you know, supposedly selfish and supposedly being altruistic. 
And it's been pointed out that Indian religions, ancient Indian religions in general, didn't make this, did not make this strong divide between self and other. Um, the divide is there to some degree, but it's very loose and it's fluid and it morphs in and out. Sometimes the focus is on self, sometimes the focus on others, because the self-other boundaries is something that's as fluid, it's inclusive, and it goes back and forth. And that uh, there's this very clear understanding of self and other work together, there's a, a, a mutuality that goes on. And I think the heart of Buddhist social interaction, the understanding of society, is understand this mutuality, how we kind of <clears throat> go back and forth. And so in, in ancient Indian religions, is this idea that um, if you benefit yourself, then you will benefit others. And if you benefit others, you'll benefit as well. It isn't all or nothing. And this last category of being a wise person, benefiting both self and others, I found to be very important for having a family. And I didn't quite understand it so well, how this worked until I had family. Because uh, I, was, I kind of was schooled in this idea of, you know, a little bit strong self and other separation. And so, you know, you really want to care for the other, like the kids, like everything's for the kids. And I think that uh, maybe it's a little bit inherent, that whole everything's for the kids when they're really young, right? They can't do anything whatsoever for themselves when they're just like, you know, a couple of days old. And, and so you have to do everything for them. And, and it just makes some sense to just kind of sacrifice so much when the kids are really young and just be exhausted and, you know, go shopping without having taken a shower, you know, combed your hair and, you know, just, you know, you can barely get, you know, a shower, right? Or if you can't get a shower, it doesn't matter because you're taking care of the kid and you don't care so much in fact that people see you all disheveled. I don't know if that was any of you that way, but, you know, uh, my priority shifted and I, when I, when I was, had new, new kids. And part of it was quite beautiful. Uh, uh, I, I understood something about being selfless in a way I hadn't before. Um, even though my years of practice in having a kid uh, who was really young, just, oh, I don't really count so much right now. And, uh, and it was beautiful not to count in this way. I don't know if you had, anybody had that idea? Wow, I don't count. Um, and then they started growing older and older, and after a while they could, you know, go to the bathroom, they could walk, they could do, you know, take care of themselves more and more. And it didn't work anymore. It, didn't, it just didn't make sense anymore. Uh, for me not to count, you know, or just kind of not, you know, just kind of give everything to them, to every, whatever you want, whatever you want, I'll take care of you. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not appropriate, it's unhealthy for them. And so there's a gradual shift that has to happen and um, uh, where the focus on the child shifts to we have to include and take care of ourselves as well and uh, becomes maybe at some point more and more important that balance shifts more and more. And at some point, there's also that we have to take, understand there's a unit. There's a family unit of a parent and child, par uh, parent, child, and other, maybe parents, parent and child, and other children, perhaps. And, um, and that it, uh, after a while, I began to appreciate that the unit as a whole have to work. The family has to work. And it can't just be that person and that person's welfare, ignoring the fact that there's this family dynamic and then family has needs for how to be together and how to interact. And so uh, uh, everyone had to learn how to take into account the family as a whole, 
and not necessarily get what they wanted. Or even sometimes if they had things they needed which were kind of a need or could be seen as important, it didn't quite fit into the family as a unit, as a family system. And so everyone has to kind of morph and change and learn how to be part of something bigger than themselves, the, the self and others. And, um, and that's, you know, part of the theme for this week, uh, these days together, is that loving-kindness for self, loving-kindness for others tomorrow, and then Saturday we'll do loving-kindness for self and others, building on this kind of progression, knowing how to take care of oneself, being concerned and taking care of others or caring for others, but also caring for the, the container, the community, self, you know, self and others I take to be the we that we are. And that we, that circle of we, sometimes it's very small, it's just maybe a family unit, sometimes it's an extended family unit, sometimes it's a neighborhood unit or family and friends, sometimes it's a school unit, sometimes it's the unit of the retreat, the, this is the, the we, Sometimes it's our, um, you know, our society as a whole, our nation as a whole, the world as a whole. These are all the circles of we that, uh, you know, we, they're a part of, you know, how we fit in and who we are. <clears throat> and to live all kind of myopic and not take into account this larger we means that we not, I don't know how well we can just be resting in an open heart, an open mind, <clears throat> um, if we kind of have blinders on or kind of somehow not appreciate that we're kind of, you know, how wide and open we are. So the, um, the idea of caring for we, um, and so part of that is, uh, for me, has been learning, a very important part of it coming out of this practice for me <clears throat> is the way in which the practice can hold everything. The practice of mindfulness, of awareness, of compassion, is uh, <clears throat> welcomes everything, it's included with every, includes everything. Including everything doesn't mean that we condone everything, but uh, there's space for it in the attention, in our care, in our investigation. We kind of think, yes, this too I'm willing to meet and be with. And then uh, what's supposed to happen is maybe discovered over time. <clears throat> but to uh, turn your back to something or to step away or or say not, kind of to say not this too quickly, um, uh, limits the capacity of the love that just is to resonate, to respond, to kind of, kind of be with what is. Uh, it limits the capacity for us just to be awareness, just to be a human uh, in an open way. And uh, to learn what is really going on for us? What's really happening in the situation that we could see or feel if we take time just to be with it, as opposed to uh, come right, right, in, right away with our desires, right away with our resistance, right away with our fears, right away with our agendas, right away with our ideas we have to fix something, but to allow just to be here. Uh, what's here? What's this? Let's include this first and foremost. What is this like? What is this like? <clears throat> so being at the family retreat <clears throat> is, uh, uh, <clears throat> as uh, Kate said this morning, uh, the heart you know, expands and contracts. It's a kind of, you know, all kinds of thing goes on here because it's a retreat. And um, I said this to half the group, half the parents yesterday, <clears throat> those of you who weren't here, 
say that uh, this is a retreat, and it's not all not all the parents who come here appreciate that. A lot of, some parents come here thinking they're doing it for the sake of their kids. You know, just a good influence for the kids, a good place for the kids to come along. It's for the kids, and you're kind of like at summer camp. You're just here, like tagging along or something. It's just. <clears throat> but this is a powerful place to be, and the rhythm of this life here, and the teachings, and what goes on here at Spirit Rock, um, and that, uh, and the continuity of the schedule, going from one thing to the next as you do. Uh, it's a powerful field of practice, and it is a retreat for you as well. And you can approach it as a retreat, so you can get more benefit out of it, is as a place where you, <clears throat> you're willing to meet whatever comes up. You're willing to say, oh, this too. I'll practice with. This too, I'll try to figure, find my way. What is beneficial for me in this situation? What's beneficial for others? What's beneficial for we as a whole? To keep meeting everything and seeing it as practice, that's the option that you have. And that's how you get the most out of your the practice life, most out of retreat, is keep asking, how oh, this too, this too. And um, <clears throat> I had to learn that here because uh, I found that my early years of being a parent, before I was a teacher for these retreats, that um, I got really tired. It was amazing, and, and it, it seemed like it took, these retreats were so long. I, you know, I couldn't believe how long these family retreats were. Not that I was bored or kind of impatient, it was just like, they were just so full. <clears throat> when I did, I did long, silent retreats. I did like three-month retreats. Uh, the longest silent retreat I did was eight months long. I didn't really talk to anyone but a teacher for eight months, just sitting and walking and practicing. It's one of the highlights of my life. <clears throat> and one of the awesome things there was um, how quickly the days went. Like, it just felt like we, we, you know, we just had a meal, and we're going to, to meal again. Just like, like just always eating. Because <laughs> that's all that ever happened. We just sat, the meditation just kind of sailed, sailed by so quickly. Family retreat. Like, <laughs> what happened this afternoon, this morning? You know, and <clears throat> you know, it's just everything. It seems like it's stretched out. At least for me, I don't know how it is for you, but it was. It seemed that my kids were younger, so stretched out and so big. And by the time we got to Friday afternoon, it was like we'd been here for a week, <clears throat> and um, and I was exhausted. And <clears throat> also, I found myself in the tiredness. Uh, going through some of the same cycles of emotions that I have on retreat. Um, sometimes uh, feeling quite vulnerable and very tender. Sometimes feeling very self-conscious being in, uh, among all these good people. And uh, sometimes I was challenged with my <clears throat> younger son that I used to come with. And um, it wasn't, wasn't always pretty, the family dynamics or the, you know, how things were being worked out. And, and um you know, I was already, a, you know, known as a teacher at Spirit Rock, so, you know, I imagine people were checking me out. How does he parent? <laughs> you know, it didn't look so pretty. <laughs> you know, so because we're, you know, trying to fi find it out. So all this is held. I felt like, you know, so, oh, this too, this too. And so I had enough wisdom to know this too. Find our way with this, practice with this, try to uh, be present for this, explore this. And then I would try to find my buddy families or other people to support me sometimes as I got wiser how to be here, reached out to other people and then offered my help to other families because I knew how challenging it can be. So the we, 
and the reciprocity, the mutuality of this practice. Um, don't just think about yourself. Don't just think about others. But uh, think about how does this work as a community? How does this work as a we? Because we are deeply we. <clears throat> we are we. <laughs> the I is a we. The we is an I. The you is a we. The we is a you. Where you know that somehow the, the we uh, is a, is a very important part of what happens, and it's not so automatic to see that. The, again, I spent years uh, practicing in monastic Buddhism monasteries, and this was one of the very strong lessons for me in monastic Buddhism was the uh, very strong sense that we were practicing as we, as a community, and, and working together, interacting. Like it wasn't just myself, it just, just wasn't others, but there was um, uh, an organism called a we that, uh, you know, that somehow was morphing and changing and supporting, and, and we took care of the group as a whole, and then the individuals were t- taken care of. At times we took care of individuals, and then the whole was taken care of. There's so many lessons with this, with uh, being in family and children, and now that I have teenagers, uh, I don't think some of the perceptions of me is accurate. <laughs> and some of them are very accurate, you know, more accurate than I care for. <laughs> and how those two work together, but also, but also my perceptions of my children. I, one, of the, one of the things I learned slowly having children is uh, to the degree to which I was seeing them through the filter of some of my suffering as a child and uh, kind of worried, I don't want that to happen to them. You know, some of them, it wasn't going to happen to them, but I was like ah, hovering, oh no, you know. And, um, and so to, to learn to see, I was, I was parenting or seeing them through my own suffering, and that was not useful. So all these perceptions we have, and, um, and how, how not to have a perception, or, you know, an interpretation or thinking. And that's, again, uh, one of the important things this practice has done for me. And I don't know, maybe there's other ways of doing this, um, uh, you know, you could maybe a lot of, I don't know, many ways probably to do it, but uh, strong experience of love or times in nature perhaps or taking LSD or something. But uh, to learn about how um, um, we overlay onto our reality our perceptions, our interpretations, our concepts, and learn not to do that and learn how to rest in just awareness, that's kind of pre-conceptual, pre-interpretive, and just to rest and just being, and then to watch the interpretations arise, to watch a concept arise uh, before we bought, uh, t- uh, we believed in it. That is so powerful, so useful. And so this practice, I think one of the great gifts of this practice is to be able to sit there in that place where we can watch the birth of a concept. And then we have the ability to choose how we relate to it, was it true or not? Is it, you know, even if it's true, do we want to, do we, do we really want it to be kind of clouding the, the situation? Can we just be? Can we just be our love? Can we just be our awareness? And, and be a model for everyone, for our kids, that um, it's possible to be at home in one hearts, it's possible to be at home in this world, possible to belong 
without needing to prove anything or accomplish anything or be anything. And I think if we can give that experience to our world, then perhaps each person, each and every person can be themselves and who they are can be a gift. And that would be great if all of us were gifts for each other.